Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts here, Dana Osban, here with my friend Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachat Shabbat, Kuf Chaf Bet, 122. So our daf today is going to finish up the parak, but before we get there, um, I want to talk about something that's on the top of the daf, which really begins on the previous daf of Kuf Chaf Aleph. Um, and there was a story that it told in the previous step about a Rabbi Abba Bar Kahana uh, that he had owed some money to the Reish Galuta. When they discovered that he was actually a Tamil Chacham, uh, they said that he didn't owe the, they said to leave him alone. And then we go through a series of statements where, where Rabbi um, Abba Bar Kahana describes uh, things that were allowed to be moved uh, that normally maybe would have been considered to be muksa or you wouldn't be able to, uh, you know, to carry around under nor- under other circumstances, specifically in the house of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. Now, one of the things that we've spoken about before is that Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, uh, besides being the Nasi, was actually a man of great wealth. Um, and I wanted to share this Gemara because I think this is actually one of the, you know, sort of collections of statements uh, that sort of gives proof to that. And again, I, you know, those who have been learning along with me know how important I feel it is to sort of use these Gemaras to glean and piece together important biographical information. And I think this one really uh, contains a lot about Rabbi Huda Nasi. I'm a Rabbi Abba Bar Kahana, I'm a Rabbi Chanina. So Rabbi Abba Bar Kahana said in the name of Rabbi Chanina, Pimutot Shabbat Rabbi, Mutar Lutatalam B'Shabbat. The candlesticks of the house of Rabbi Huda Nasi were permitted to be moved on Shabbat. Amar le Rabbi Zera. So Rabbi Zera said to him, So he said, because it wasn't clear what type of candlesticks are you talking about. So Rabbi Zera said, are these small candlesticks basically that could be moved with one hand or are they large candlesticks that would need two hands? Amar le ko'atan shalbet avicha. They are like the ones that are in your house. Now, that still doesn't straightforwardly answer the question. Um, but Tosfo says that it's, you know, and many of the commentators explain that it would be sort of these large candlesticks that probably would take two people to move them. Umar goes on and says, but I'm a Rabbi Abba Bar Kahana, I'm a Rabbi Hanina. Again, the same statement. These types of chairs um, of the house of Rabbi Nasi were allowed to be moved on Shabbat. And again, Amar Le Rabbi Zera. Rabbi Zera comes back with the same question. Right? Does could these be carried by one person or with all those laws about like moving furniture, right? That you could carry something if it was something that uh, if if two people carry something that only one person could carry, or if you had an item that needed two people to carry and two people carried it, you would be chayav in that sort of case, right? So he says again. They're like the ones that are in your house. Again, it's not clear if that means it's a one or if it's a two. But I'm a I'm a Rabbi Abba Bar Kahana. Hey, tir lahem Rabbi Chanina lebeit lebeit Rabbi lishtot yain bekaronot shalgoi bechotem echad. So now he says that Rabbi Chanina allowed that the household of Rabbi Huda Nasi could drink wine that was transported in a non-Jewish uh, person's wagon. Okay, that only had one seal. Now, we know that in the times of the Mishnah, even today, we have that. This is the whole concept of Yain Mabushal, right? That we're very careful with wine, that potentially a non-Jew could sort of tamper with it or get to it and would use it 
basically for like a Bodazara or for some, you know, and then you would not be allowed to use that wine at all anymore. Um, and so normally what would have to happen is, is that if you were going to transport wine or wine was being sealed, it would have to have a double seal. And here with Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbi Hanina allowed that his wine could have one seal and it would still be allowed to be transported in the wagon of a non-Jew. Okay. Right. And we don't know what Rabbi Abba Barachana says is he doesn't know if the reason why this was allowed is because Rabbi Hanina holds like the opinion of Rabbi Eliezer, who said that actually this was okay, that you only needed the single seal, or if it because, right, this is what I think is the important time, Amita Deve Nasiya, because there were a fear of the household of the Nasi. Meaning what? That uh, that the Nasi, because such a powerful Jewish person, that even the non-Jew would not have started up with Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, right? He was really like a person of power. And therefore, they didn't even need to worry that somebody would ever think of tampering with his particular wine. So I thought this was just an interesting Gemara here. It doesn't give us a ton of details, right? It's not totally clear uh, which is which, uh, you know, in terms of the candles and the chairs, were they smaller or bigger? Um, but even just this piece about the wine and why there wasn't a concern, you know, at the end about that non-Jews would tamper with it, I thought just told, tells us something, and we'll see more of these types of stories, of sort of the high esteem and even the political power and the respect that Rabbi Huda Hanasi had in his day. I think that the the picture that you paint of Rabbi Yudha Hanasi is very valuable. I think there's something else here that happens on the daf, which is, I don't know, it's a bit meta, meta, right? Like taking a step back from the content of the story, which ends on this discussion of the non-Jew versus the Jew. And I want to say that the Mishnah, which immediately follows this, this bit that you've just read, and and embarks on a discussion of meaning this Jew with non-Jew discussion that takes place in the Mishnah is here kind of interpolated into the discussion of the Gemara, which is very clever crafting of the people who put the Gemara together, right? Again, there's a lot of supposition that the Mishnah itself, although it was already in formalized oral format before the writing of the Gemara, before the conversations that created the Gemara, there is a very strong likelihood, in fact, that the Mishnah itself was only written down, meaning that that formalized, memorized Mishnah was only written down after the writing down of the Gemara, which means that the Mishnah was known and worded, but as we've seen, sometimes it appears only at the beginning of a parak, And here it's put exactly where it belongs, so to speak, in the, in the flow of the Gemara. You've just been talking now about the non-Jew, so I'm now going to talk about the Mishnah of the non-Jew except for that the content of the mission of the non-Jew predates the Gemara of the non-Jew discussion by several hundred years, which is kind of in, you know, you want to talk about what's really going on on the daf. It's a very complicated. Yeah. Dance. I think that's a great, and I think that they've woven. It very yeah. I think here. that's a great literary connection to make that like, while we're, and again, we would assume that sort of the, the order of the Mishnah was already set, but to see them segue from a comment about non-Jewish relationships with the Jew, and then we go straight into a Mishnah that really discusses that even more in depth. So here we go. Man'itin, if a non-Jew lights a candle, mishtamesh lo ro Yisrael. So an, 
Inanju lights a candle or, you know, puts on a lamp in the house. So then the Jew can use that light. Meaning, again, assuming that the non-Jew is lighting the candle or lamp for him, himself, then the Jew can benefit from using that light. But if the non-Jew lights the candle for the sake of the Jew, then the Jew may not use it. Likewise, if he if he draws water from a well for the sake of watering his flocks, and afterwards, like there's enough water, I guess, in the trough for the for the Jew to also water his flocks from that water that has been drawn from the well, so then that would be acceptable. The Jew can do so. The Imbishvil Israel, but if the non-Jew drew water specifically for the Jews' flocks, then Asur, he cannot use it. Asagoy Kevis Leredbo. Kevish, sorry. Asagoy Kevish Leredbo, Yoreda Kharav Yisrael. If a if a non-Jew makes a ramp to walk down to make, you know, to make a hill, either down a hill or more likely down from a boat, right? Getting off a disembarking from a ship. So then and he does so. Now the Jew can walk after him. But if the non-Jew has made the ramp to disembark from the ship for the sake of the Jew, and he has no intent to, intention of doing it himself, a sort, you know, for the Jew to use it. So this happened. Rabbi Gamliel and other of the elders were in fact on a ship, and a non-Jew made them a ramp to come down to disembark from the ship. And they used it. Right? So this is a Masa Shahaya, meaning literally Maaset. It says uh, a, a happening, right, that happened where the practice can be, first of all, we've got the halacha, but then we've got attestation to that practice by the behavior of Chazal, that in fact it was permitted for them to use this ramp. And the assumption is, right, that the that the non-Jew made the ramp for his own use to disembark from the ship. And then afterwards, Rabbi Gamliel and the others used it as well. Well, yeah, I think we keep reading the Gemara here because I think the comment about that story is very, very interesting, uh, especially in light of what we've talked about a little bit about using stories as proof of halacha. Yes, and I, actually, I as you know, sometimes we say, oh, we just like to read the whole daf. I don't know about the whole daf, but this whole section, I think, is very valuable, especially because, you know, there is so much potential for Jew for the relationship between Jews and non-Jews over the course of history. I mean, I'm not even talking about right now, although it's not an exception, right, can be so fraught. So I think that what we see here in these examples of Jew-non-Jew dynamic within halacha, right, which is both, we're going to see both the narrative and also just a straight up law. I think it's informative, I think, in this question of what, what, how are, do we expect ourselves to relate to the non Jews? Well, well, I okay, think, so well, what, let me just oh. add one thing here. I think what's clear from this stuff is this stuff sort of has a, uh, there's a normative relationship here. Like there's an assumption of Jews and non Jews living alongside each other. Um, and, you know, in a very sort of, it seems like a very sort of friendly, Way I think we saw that also in the piece before about a non-Jew who comes to put out the fire. So there sort of seems to be a continuation of this. And like you said, like there's nothing political, there's no politics here. It's like, yeah, you could just right. have had a non-Jewish neighbor or a non-Jewish friend or not. You could have been around a non-Jew and one of these things could have happened. Right. Okay. So now we're going to get to 
the very beautiful part of this Gemara on this Mishnah. V'tzricha, we need this case, this example, this halacha in each one of these cases. De'iyash me'ina ner, because if we only learn the case of the candle, mishum de'ner le'achad ner le'me'a, the very fact that one candle lights the way for a hundred, meaning the same way one one can light a candle just for his own use, but it will also illuminate the way for a hundred people, a hundred here being a round number, I might think that the candle rule was, you know, won't apply to the water. This is classic Gemara rationale about why each case might be needed. Okay, so the fact that the candle, the candle or lamp is different from drawing water from a well in that the light itself will benefit so many people then I might think that these are different cases, fundamentally different cases, and I don't need, and I and therefore, I would not need, let me just say it right, I would not need to learn, the. I can't learn one from the other, that's really the point, right, that each one of them has its own different characteristics, so the fact that the, that the lamp lights for 100, then I might think that the water is completely not allowed, right, and the answer is, no, it's still allowed, the Jew can still benefit from the water that has been drawn, even though it's not for the public, so to speak. He's really only just drawing for himself, and yet the Jew can still use, use it. Okay, and then what about the ramp? And then <laughs> this is, I think, very interesting. The Gemara says, the reason the example of the ramp is given in this list of Havalacha, the Kevish Lamali, why is it there? So that it could tell us the story of Rabban Gamliel Uzkenim. Meaning, usually we'd think that the, the story comes to illustrate the halacha. In this case, the halacha was written down, so to speak, included for the sake of this story. That, that was the line it's, that it, I wanted you to get to. <laughs> yeah. yeah right. this so I think it's very like... beautiful that the Gemara wanting to tell us about what Chazal did. Right. And because I guess in a way, it's not intuitive that that would be allowed. Right. And, you know, maybe it, or really wasn't intuitive to them. So that story sort of says it all. <laughs> and, you know, Rebbe Gamliel does not usually have a tendency. I don't think of him as Mikhail Machmer is not the right word here. But, you know, he just he was the Nasi. And if it was good for him and, and he led by that example, then it's good halacha. Right. Okay. Now I want to jump down further on the. Wait, oh, sorry. Still one one about- other thing I wanted to just uh, that I just wanted to mention here is um, just just going back a tiny bit. Um, I love this idea. This you know this idea of diner uh, lechad ner Um, You know that a lamp for one is really a lamp for a hundred people. Um, I couldn't that be a phrase we apply to like a multitude of scenarios in life, right? That are there things or actions we do? Yeah, you know, if we want to think about it, I know they mean it so practically here. I think it has some very nice philosophical implications. Oh, I think of it as philosophical as well. I just think that there's something very um, particular to light, right? And of course, that becomes a, a parable for Torah, right? Right, and and everything like that. But this idea, and maybe it's from you know, a childhood, a youth rather in NCSY, but this idea that you have a single candle and it lights the whole room and it illuminates everybody's way, right? And there's something, so I, I'm saying it schmaltzy, schmaltzy, but I mean it like that there's something very powerful about that. I don't know that it applies to other things beyond light 
quite in the same no, way. No, I agree with you. But just this idea that one light can illuminate for many. Um, I'm really thinking of the Peter, Paul, and Mary um, song, Light One Feels- Candle, which I think is going to have to be the name of this episode. You can continue now. Okay. <laughs> Um, okay, so jumping down on the daf, Tashma, Ir Shisrael Vagoyim Darin Betocha. So we have a city that has both Jews and non-Jews living in it. And I have to say, you know, I was reading this, I was like, well, isn't that how every city is? And then I realized that in my own city, right, certainly Jerusalem has many Jews and non-Jews living in it. But in my Dalar Amot, right, in my in my own building or my the few buildings in my neighborhood, I mean, my area right here. It's not so much uh, a mixed a mix in that way. If I were looking for a non-Jew to, I don't know, anything on Shabbat, right? I would have a hard time finding such a person. Nonetheless, my knee-jerk reaction is still, that's how we kind of assume cities are these days. They're Jews and non-Jews living together. So there's a bathhouse that was functional on, you know, was working on Shabbat. So now the question is, you're Jewish and your bathhouse is working on Shabbat. Can you use it? The same way that the candle can also be an example for lamps, right? Lights in the house. Here we've got an example. There are certainly places in Israel, again, where the question is, can't you, or I'm sure this is true anywhere else, I guess, where there's a public pool. Can a pool that is open on Shabbat, can you use it, you know, as a Shabbos type of thing? So the Gemara here says, Im rov goyim mutar miyad. If most of the city is non-Jews, yes, you can use it. Don't even worry about it. And the issue is here really heating the water, which is, of course, not an issue for or may not be an issue for a public pool. But the idea is that the the everything that is done in the Beit HaMerchatz is for the sake of the, the majority of the people. So if the majority of the people are non-Jews, then there's no concern that any malacha in preparation or or running of the bathos would be for the sake of the Jewish people. It would only be for the sake of the non-Jews. And then the Jews can kind of come along and get that benefit because it's not, the malacha is not done on their personal behalf. And then the Gemara continues, of course, Imu of Yisrael, Yamtin b'kdeshi yachmul chamin. If most of the city is Jews, then the Jews to use it, meaning those who keep halacha, would have to wait they have to wait that amount of time after Shabbat till the water itself would have heated up. They cannot use it on Shabbat. And more than that, they can't even use it. Let's say the second Shabbat goes out, they have to wait the amount of time that the water, that it takes to heat the water. Which is not quite the same thing as saying it's usr, except for that it is, right? They're saying you can't use it on Shabbat. You can use it after Shabbat, after you've waited a certain amount of time. Hatam ki machamami adata teruba machamami. Because the idea is that they're heating it up for the majority. Rove in halacha, the concept of a majority, is a very important concept. It will come up throughout as we continue through Shas. Um, well, what's, what's yeah. interesting to me about this is, had you told me this was just Gemara, right? Like, in other words, that the Gemara, the Amuraim and Babel made this comment and made this distinction between Jew, like a city that had more non-Jews or a city that had more Jews, that's like diaspora Torah. That makes like total and perfect sense to me that that would be something that Amorayim living in Bavel would have to hash out. What's fascinating to me is this is a brysa. And clearly, therefore, that means it should have been authored in Eretz Yisrael, right, with the Tanayim. And so what I'm trying to figure out is 
was this the case? Like, were there actual cities in Eretz Yisrael in the time that did have a majority of non-Jews? Oh, for sure. Right. I guess so. I don't know. I just like when I saw it, I was Kesaria. like, Kesaria is the point. Right. Is the example. Always. Right. It just was like when you see it in black and white, it was like kind of a little um, not shocking to me. But yeah, I guess like it just puts into perspective a little bit. Like, what's our actual ideal when we say not to get into Zionist politics now, <laughs> but sort of like when we say like, Oh, it's a Jewish homeland. Oh, it's a Jewish state. And I think we clearly see her. Yes, they were under the rule of the Romans. Not like they had independence, but it's just interesting to see, like, this was just factual. This was part of life. There were going to be towns and cities that were primarily non-Jewish. And this was matter of fact of life in Israel, not just life in the diaspora. Right, exactly. And also it doesn't say, and this I think is interesting, there's no, like, there's no wistfulness or wishfulness or happy joy in the fact that, lo and behold, there's a majority of non-Jews, so they lucky them get to benefit from the Beta Merchat. Like, it's not, there's no value judgment here. It really is just in describing, either way. are just, you allowed, are you right, not? But in either yes, way, exactly. it's just like, this is just how life was. It's so matter of fact. Right. So matter of fact. Here's the next one. Tashma, ne'er had a look So this, I think, is even more to your point, Yardina. Right, because here we're talking about if there's a lamp, you know, again, candles that are kindled, ignited at a party. Now, perhaps that means a feast or a banquet, right? It doesn't necessarily mean a party the way we think of a party, but still. You go to this party, you go to this banquet, and most of the people there are non-Jews. Meaning on Shabbos, you're going to a banquet where most of the people are not Jewish. Then you can use the candle in that banquet hall. In Rov Yisrael, but if most of the people in that banquet hall on Shabbat are Jewish, then you're not allowed to use that that light. Then you're not allowed to use the lamp. asur. So what does that mean? If it's 50-50 split, then it's prohibited, says the Gemara here. Or again, it's quoting a Brita that the you're not allowed to use the lamp under those circumstances. Hatam nami ki madlike adata deruba madlike. So then it seems that there's a, a response to that position that says Asur. It says that really, they're still always going to have in mind the majority when they light the lamps for that banquet. So the question then is not necessarily who's in attendance at the banquet at that moment, but whom would they have in mind when they went to light the lamps? And if the assumption is that it's going to be mostly non-Jews, then your Mechza, your 50-50 split is still not going to be such an issue, you know, if more, if more non-Jews are coming. Of course, if more Jews are coming, then you're in trouble and you can't use it. Of course, this is exactly the point, right? Here we're talking about socializing. This is not just, you know, a neighbor who on occasion you pass in the street, right? This is, this is really, uh, you know, full-on integration, at least at, you know, when you think about a banquet hall, you think, who are you inviting? Doesn't that sound like friends? Yeah, Maybe I, colleagues. Yeah, this, I thought, you know? was of everything on the page. This was, I, you know, I didn't mention it before we totally got to it. This really is, you know, really, it shows like people lived alongside each other. So, and then we have here, here, Yardana, we've got one more piece of narrative. And with this, we're going to end this whole parak, let alone this whole piece. But We'll hold on. We'll get there in a moment. Shmuel ikulavei avitoran, atahu goy adlik shraga. So Shmuel was in the house of somebody of avintoran, which we we saw this name avintoran before, right? And it seems to be a 
a philosophical discussion kind of house where perhaps some um, some heresy was being discussed. Right? We saw this. I don't know how many dots. It was a few that We were talking about. Yeah. We were talking about heresy and and belief and so on. So, you know, again, this location shows up again. Shmuel was there, and Inanju came and lit the candle. Adrin hu Shmuel laape. So Shmuel turned his face away from the lamp. Because he doesn't want to benefit from the light. But then he sees that a non-Jew, the, the person who lit the lamp, is reading. He's He brought a contract or some kind of document. And he was reading it. He said, oh, he lit the lamp not to benefit the room, but to benefit himself so he could actually read the text that he has before him. So then he turned his face back to the candle and he was willing to use the lamp itself and get that benefit. So again, we see Jews and non-Jews in the same space. If in fact this was a, a you know a philosophical salon, so to speak, then it's even more interesting, I think, that Shmuel was being very careful about this halacha. But, but more importantly, um, and then, he was there on Shabbat. Like that's what's amazing yes. about it. Like you would sort of be like, look, we all, I think most of our listeners, we all partake sort of in secular culture and certain things. But I would think like in my mind, like that wouldn't be like a Shabbos activity. And it's fascinating. He was there on Shabbat. Right. So I, again, you know, every so often I say like, I really want the movie version. I want to, I want the visual of, I don't mean the visual, like to, to visualize it. I can visualize this. I mean, I want the, the transcript. I want the details of how this came to be. What really was Beit Avintoran? What really was going on there? Right. Like who was there on a regular basis? How from were they? How off the derech were they? Right. Like, I don't know. I, I don't, I, I'm sure there are people who know more than I do about this particular topic, but I still feel that it's it, we're at such a remove, I, and I want to go back in time and 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 find out for myself. So we're going to wrap up here. Just as a side note, um, I know we actually didn't get to almost a full Amud of Gemara, um, but the next parak is really its own thing. So tomorrow is really going to be an episode of Kuf Chaf Bet Amud Bet and Kuf Chaf Gimel. So stay tuned for that as we go back to Muksa. Um, and more about Shabbos itself. So with that, we'll wrap up. That's our tap for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Neat Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hodgman website. Uh, let us know what you thought about this tap and the relationships it describes between Jews and non-Jews on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. 